0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Mangum Reads. As per our usual, when we're going through long novels, I'm doing the least effort possible and have no intro prepared. But for our book, for those who were listening before, we're doing Spinning Silver by Nomi Novik. Continuing on from where we stopped... Actually, no, before we do that, Sarah, I believe you have another one-star review that you discovered as part of your uh, constant travels into that particular topic.
1: Oh, boy, do I. So, I... Did. I am going to rely on you both to tell me when to stop on this one star review because it is quite a long one, but I would like to start with the idea that um, i think I think that we are in this review really getting towards some things that we are some topics and and plot points that we are going to deal with in this particular episode um, but to the point of things that we were talking about off-pod, I would like to just mention, mention that I am, I am dealing with a Good, Goodreads review, and it is a two-star review on Goodreads, and the beginning of the actual review itself um, explains that criteria and says, I'm not giving this a one because it was at least legible. <laughs>
0: <sighs> okay, rough opening. <laughs>
1: um... One star is for books that are as bearable as bad as a bad fan fiction, so this is at least better than that. so th- that's where we're beginning this evening. Um, I will th- so, so as marillion. I said this yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm muting myself right now. Go on.
1: <laughs> Just press the little button. we'll continue on without you, Spencer. Join us when mm-hmm. you feel capable um so this review goes on for a long time and i'm i'm trying to determine how much of it i'm actually want to go into as we begin it, but there is a we can give you a two minute timer oh, Well, i'm <laughs> yeah, very used I've got to that uh there is a that's right there is a nine point scale or a nine point argument for why this is a two store two star story oh wow I, it's yeah, more some well of thought out are... than
2: most of my college essays
1: okay Uh, which I think is fair I am going to I'm gonna try to point out why I chose this review a little bit uh, Mm -hmm. and condense some of the other points because we've talked about some of them Uh, the first point encompasses kind I, I think kind of a lot of them in all caps and we have talked about this a little bit, and I think that we will continue to talk about this probably in the third episode of this book. Uh, this this reviewer is concerned about all of the perspectives that we deal with. Mm-hmm. They say simply, the perspectives, why are there so many useless perspectives? I hated it. So So that's a helpful point i
2: every so often when when i see people review things badly that either i think i will like or i know that i like Mm -hmm. i see what else that they have reviewed badly okay um i'm just wondering if they reviewed game of thrones or uh wheel of time or or i can just start naming series that have multiple perspectives but i just sort of want to know like are they just not engaged enough in in um cognitive prowess to to be able to deal with more than one perspective um, like if they watch certain movies do they just get confused and not like them, or is this a they didn't like how multiple pers- perspectives were done in this book
1: so I'm tr- I, I am actively trying to figure that out as we talk about this. I will say on their Goodreads pers- or on their Goodreads um, profile that they have read and rated over 200 novels. Oh wow! <laughs> um, and most of them were sort of fantasy, sci-fi related, as far as I can can see. Yeah.
2: I really want not that
1: that which, says which anything about multiple multiple perspectives per, per se. Although I think we can probably infer some things about that.
2: I kind of want to watch the, them watch Rashomon or Seven Samurai, and just see what <laughs> happens as they like experience such a thing.
1: Yeah, because mm. I am I am looking at a lot of reviews and just well reviews ratings for books that I have no fucking idea what they're talking about, <laughs> um, and they are like very predisposed to give four or five star reviews to fantasy novels that I have never heard of.
0: Fair enough. Hm. Yeah, It's an interesting criticism if you're very fond of fantasy because it's gotten really common now to have lots of different perspectives in books. I, I feel mean, like every much.
1: fantasy novel I grew up on has many perspectives.
0: And, and let's be fair, We talked. I think we discussed last episode, we think there are probably too many perspectives in this, mm-hmm. but not in the sense that they're overwhelming, just in the sense it dilutes it. Yeah. There's still not that I, I many. Think, it's like I six. think it
2: was, there were like two to three too many kind of thing where it was just like, there were some minor characters that yes. it doesn't really add a lot when, when you get their perspective. Like there isn't something particularly interesting or unique from their perspective that you didn't get otherwise. And I think that mm-hmm. yeah. we will probably fall to maybe different sides on the fourth perspective, I'm going to say, but um, I think we agree on at least five out of, I think the six that we really get.
1: And so I would like to thank you for recommending that I go look at um, kind of what other books that they have rated and what they have done with their reviews because it took me to their profile specifically. which fascinatingly, has an entire scale related to the other point that I wanted to make about this book.
2: (laughs) Okay, Go on.
1: So I told you that they have a kind of nine-point argument about their two-star rating that has happened here. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. their ninth point, which is where I actually wanted to get in this review, is probably more related to an episode that we will do at the end of the book. But we get a lot of, like, marriages in, in, I think, the episode that we're going to do here, so mm-hmm. fuck it. Um, mm-hmm. Number nine in their specific review of Spinning Silver is it's a one on my sexiness scale, which is super bummer <laughs> because Uprooted, which is another book by Naomi Novik, and a lot of her points have to do with how she is comparing this book to Uprooted, mm-hmm. uh, is my definition for the best kind of sexiness. So uh let me or you let me down Novik. interesting uh, blah 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 there's a lot of there's some other um discussion of this which like okay fine i w- i i would have mentioned it and we could have moved on but now but, <laughs> but now bj bj you have directed me to look <laughs> at
2: a treasure trove the
1: goods the goodreads profile of this person and i have not read this i have only skimmed it, because it has happened in the last uh, less than 10 minutes that we've been recording, Mm -hmm. Uh, you have directed me to their Goodreads page, and their About section.
0: Yeah. Which is?
1: Is. And I thought I was reading... I've had a couple of glasses of wine. I thought I was reading their review for another some other book. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, This is not their review for some other book. This is actually their About section. Is, and I quote, since I seem to be the only person that cares about how satisfyingly sexy a book is, here's my personal sexy scale that I'll put in my reviews.
2: Oh my god. I Whoa. i feel like we need to have a uh link that might go along with this episode when it is published. <laughs> yeah,
1: we'll post it. We'll post um, it. I'll, that, I'll, that I'll is... put it up. This is a. A one to five scale, so I feel perfectly fine in reading you all of this.
2: I think we might need to have an addition to our puttering around chapters.
1: Mm. Well, yes, I think that we could do a sexiness scale according to, who is this person? Miscellaneous Alley.
2: Oh, even better. Clearly, they're a (laughs) Harry Potter fan. Uh,
0: I feel like, BJ, this person is your mirror and opposite based on your prior discussion of what of your assessment of sex scenes in literature and what they should and what they shouldn't do. I don't think she's going to reach the same conclusion
2: you, conclusions I, you do. I really want to see what this person thinks of the broken earth trilogy because, um,
1: <laughs> I will, as we are discussing yeah. other things, I will, I will try to see if they have something the, on it. I would also like to point out that this is a zero to five scale, but it also, it, it seems to be functioning on a sort of like art scale where it's not like five is the best. Interesting. Five seems to go Hmm. too hard in the other direction. So, may I read you what these qualifications are? Please do. Okay. So, uh, zero. Literally no romance or sexiness. You'd read it with your grandma. Okay. Mm -hmm. One, which is how she has, for the record, rated uh, spinning silver. Longing gazes and holding hands. Maybe a fade to black kiss. Boring waste of time. You'd read it with your grandma. Which, okay. Okay why are you reading Uh, sexy things
2: with your grandma anyway anyway think
1: anything written in the 1800s okay uh two on the scale some kisses little more deets on the action but not anything you'd be afraid of you a 12 year old sister reading (laughs) think twilight three it's getting up there good shit good shit a little more hanky panky maybe a tastefully boring fade to black sex scene uh, think the third book of the in the Grisha series. I don't know what that means. Yeah, I don't know it. Okay. Oh, oh. Um, and then we get to d- four. Finally, shit goes down. Actually getting some deets after actual sexual tension people give a shit about. Think Uprooted, which is the um, Naomi Novik novel that she keeps comparing Spinning Silver to. Uh, or later, Dark Fever books, which I have no frame of reference for. Uh, Then four, or I'm sorry, five, now it's too many deets. Pump the brakes. (laughs) It's getting boring with how much these people are fucking. Christ. Think Fifty Shades of Grey or other crappy bodice rippers.
2: Okay.
0: Well, I think I can say with confidence, yeah, that if our listeners are looking for porn with plot, they will be very disappointed with this story. That's not what it's about.
1: Yeah. Um, For the record, the rest of her about... Has a lot of, uh, details on how she reads fantasy and sci-fi novels with a focus on epi- epic and romance elements.
2: Hopefully not too uh, many But, in there.
1: well, she says, for how much I love romance in my stories, I almost never read pro- pure romance, and I definitely don't read erotica. Shit's boring. Okay, then.
2: <laughs> um... Yeah, I mean, if you want a story that probably lends itself a little bit more towards that, I think Snow White and the Seven Dwarves would be a little bit more toward that. <laughs> a certain yeah, perspective. Yeah, if you want a fairy tale that's a little bit more explicit. Yeah.
1: Mm. Yeah. Shockingly, we are focusing on sort of uh, the inner lives of characters.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: In many ways, the avoidance of that kind of romantic plot from their from all of their perspectives. I mean, Indeed. But going to the section we're go- we're going into. Several of our characters, actually all three of our main characters, will be making key decisions based on avoiding romantic scenarios that have been forced upon them. Yep. Yes. Yeah, all three, actually, thinking about that.
2: We have a recurring theme.
1: Indeed. And it
2: seems an anathema to our one-star reviewer. uh, Surprisingly enough, non-consensual sex is not a a, uh, main theme in this book. (laughs) We're going to the actual themes that are brought up in this book.
0: Yeah. we kind of left off teasing the idea of, this, of who the Staric are and where they're entering the story. And for this next section, they really come to the forefront
2: of what the story is going to be about. Uh, we So I was going to say, we have a little bit of an inkling that they sort of raid villages in the winter, as I believe we talked about last episode. Um, and then there's this, uh, the Staric Road, which is sort of this uh, road in snow that you sort of see out of the corner of your eye that is sort of closer or farther away from you and it completely varies with like who you are and how you feel that day and whatever else there this is sort of the first sense of magic that we get in the world mm-hmm. that the star mm-hmm. road is not so much a place but uh an idea or a thing of magic and it it
0: does have a physical presence it's not just purely in the mind and it has a physical threat that's associated with it too the closer it gets to where you are the the greater threat the greater risk you have Mm -hmm. when we see Miriam and her mother are riding back from the first meeting the grandfather uh they stark road is very close to the road they're traveling on to the point that a certain they have to actually stop and cover themselves and hide because the Starik apparently ride past and bring the winter with them, which just freezes everything around, with an act of concern that if the Starik choose to stop and investigate them, they're dead. That's just how the Starik work.
1: And this is, the the Starik road is an interesting point in kind of, uh, certainly my reading of this story, because when I first read about the Starik road, I thought that it was going to be a kind of liminal space where, like, weird shit happens on the road. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. This is... Uh, the kind of carnival or whatever, like transformative experiences can happen in spaces that are neither here nor there. Yeah. And the Staric mm-hmm. Road is presented as this place that is, is clearly that. It is the transition between the Staric Kingdom um, and the, the world as we know it in terms of, of Miriam and Wanda's and, and Irina's experiences. And we don't get that. Which is really interesting no. to me.
0: Yeah, I, like you, I very much expected it to be kind of like the border between realms. Yeah. That this is the place where you can cross over into the Fae. No, it's just a road. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it's just like, a that's kind a of supporting the end of like... the story.
1: Fucking fascinating. King. Yeah. <laughs> the,
0: king can, the king can make a road and you can travel on yeah. the road. And that's how they go. It's like, oh well, that's rather mundane for this inherently magical artifact. I was going to it's sort of like, mundane,
2: but it's also sort of incredibly magical, where it's kind of like the bridge that sort of builds itself under the the magical being that's walking out into the middle of nowhere. Yes, mm-hmm. and so
1: the only and and I, we will certainly get to there, but like since we're already talking about the, what kind of happens on the road, like the only indication of, of what we get that something weird happens on the road is the difference between the functionality and the process of um Miriam ch- changing silver into gold in the kind of everyday world and in mm-hmm. the star kingdom
0: and, and also an element that I think this is just very true for a lot of depictions of the fae realms the passage of
2: time sure yeah, w- and yeah. So I would say the passage of time and then the one other major thing is the Fae are ineffable towards mortals that they Mm -hmm. don't want to interact with. And so the people that have any dealing with them or uh, maybe would normally see them just don't remember or can't cognitively process that fact.
1: And I guess what we don't know is if, like... And this is a very minor point. It really actually doesn't matter. But like what we don't know is whether that is like an intrinsic um, function of passing over.
0: Right. We can and probably should spend an entire episode discussing how magic works in this realm, Mm -hmm. in this world, because there's a lot of different ways it's depicted, a lot of different ways it bleeds through or expresses itself and how our main characters are able to wield it. That... They have consistent themes, but they are varied and at times uncertain. I think this element of memory loss associated with the Staric is a key part of that. We really don't know if it's just an inherent aspect of their being or something that they are intentionally casting mm-hmm. upon the world. Did you fleshy thing One were? of the main things we see... It, it, sure. <laughs> one of the things we see early about the Staric is that they kind of view our plane, the you know, mundane world, as being almost like a game prisoner. That it is a place that they go into to raid, to take gold, but it's also a place where they can leave things that they have deemed theirs behind, that only they are allowed to claim. Like in the form of the white animals in the forest. Mm -hmm. We hear early that there are things in this realm that are the Starix, and everybody understands that. And And snow white animals are one of those. You do not touch them. Even being in the forest is enough of a threat, but if you have in any way poached one of their creatures, your life is forfeit. As we see... Pretty soon after we first meet the Starric, what happens to Sergei? That, in Wanda's home, they're all starving, because their dad does not give two shits. They're barely surviving. But Sergei arrived at the dinner table each day anything but really ravenous. That, similar to Wanda, who's able to eat meals over with Miriam's family, he's just pecking at his food, and she sees early and suspects that all the time he's spending in the woods, he's probably doing something he shouldn't. At a minimum, he's poaching from the noble, which is already probably a death sentence, but if he's posting from the starry, he's not. his life is not only forfeit, his soul probably is. As she pretty rapidly discovers early on here in this section, where she's working at uh, Miriam's household and little Stepan comes running, distracts her from her workday, which she very much resents, to bring her back to tell her that Sergei's
2: not moving, don't know what's happening, please help. Yeah, and...
0: And we see early on in the I section... I was going to say,
2: um, yeah, go there's a fairly common uh thing elf shot that that sort of ends up being uh catatonia and and you know maybe has some basis in reality but for a while it was like uh an elf shot you in the head or whatever and that's why people sort of end up having i think it's like seizures and catatonia and things like that are or, or sort of termed elf shot but I feel like I should look it up now that yeah. I'm just spouting things from, from the nonsense <laughs> that I well, vaguely remember. Well, well I mean, it's it's really true that our co- modern concept we have of
0: elves is very Tolkien. It's kind of what he's created and put upon us. Before really him, the concept of elves was of the Fae, very much like the Staryik. They were... A thing you couldn't understand, a thing you couldn't comprehend, and a thing you actively wanted to avoid, because any interactions you have with them would have a permanent negative effect upon you.
1: Yeah. Okay. Also, um, sidebar: in terms of uh, sort of elves, elves, and elves, I have recently read that uh, Tolkien was the one who gave us dwarves instead of dwarfs.
0: He did. He also was very zealous in saying it was elves with
2: a with a V too. He likes his V's.
0: Okay. Just checking. Yeah, that's
2: true. Yeah, uh, um, but I think we'll go into them. Um, so apparently, elf shot is like a totally, a totally a thing from the Anglo Saxons, and now and they believed that invisible elves were shooting invisible arrows into people or animals, causing shooting pains and such, which were probably just like arthritis, cramps, and stitches. Um, sure, any number of things. Rather than anything else, um, but there were other things. And my favorite, and I, I have no idea how this is pronounced. I'm going to just assume it's like with first-ish, um, but I'm not sure what language it's supposed to be in. Well, it's old English. And so that's sort of the elf shot. Interesting. Well, we, uh, we can go into greater detail about the magic by which
0: Wanda rescued Sergei, you know, in our later magic chapter, but to go through it briefly she quickly comes, comes across and deduces that, yeah, he's been poaching from the Starik and one of the Stark, maybe actually the king himself, not, it's not made perfectly clear, I think it's almost implied it is the king, come across him and kind of rip his soul out of his body. But by aid of familial magic, coming from a tree that's on their grounds, she's able to store him back. And this plays a very important role in doing kind of 180 about where their relationship starts. That early on, Wanda does not at least officially, does not care about her brothers at all. If anything, she resents them. They're competing for limited resources, she kind of blames them for what happened to her mom. They are not good in her books. They're brothers in name only. But really, from here on out, partly as a result of the fact that Stepan and Sergei know what Wanda did for them and are very thankful for it, they develop one of the closest familiar relationships we get in this book, which is quite heartwarming to see as it evolves. But this book, being fond of its multiple perspectives and various other storylines, I think we really need to start going into Miriam's bet that the Staryuk put upon her. Because when I read this, I assumed that this was going to be the entire damn. Well, book. so I feel like and we need to I discuss I it and
2: wrong. then take a hard right turn because this has nothing to do with the middle third of the book, and we get to introduce mm-hmm. Arena. But but let's before first we talk do that. about
1: <laughs> d- if my husband was female and living in eastern europe <laughs> at a time when <laughs> go on <laughs> the 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 betting that happens yes here
0: okay. so uh, this is starts out of in some ways a punishment for hubris as so many classic myths do of where miriam not really on camera but kind of implied is bragging about the fact that she's being very successful as a money yeah. lender. that she's turning silver into gold she just deposited her first gold in her, fa- in her grandfather's bank account. She is proud of herself, and the Staric overhear this, and their response, as Fey creatures who like to punish hu- hubris rich humans, immediately is to just leave a bit of Staric silver on her porch, with the implied suggestion of "Okay, go do it again."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm not gonna set a time limit, but let's just say soon.
1: Yeah. So this is what what she has to do, and like especially I think in this first this first iteration. Let's say, mm-hmm. of her turning the silver to gold, like she really does take it as as just a, a challenge.
0: Yeah, right. It, it she starts to feel much under much more under threat later, but for this first one, she's really just kind of matter of fact about it. Mm-hmm. I think she sees this as an opportunity.
2: Well, I also think this that is just like a this is an expectation of me, but it isn't a uh, a doom.
1: Yeah. yeah. So what what does she do in this first iteration?
2: Well,
0: she takes the Stark silver, which has very unique properties. This is not silver in any sense that we would recognize. It seems to have the light of the sun preserved in it, I would and say the moon. She going
2: to go with the, the a metaphor. Uh, uh,
0: fine, yes. Uh, she takes this back to that main city where her grandfather is, and goes into the Jewish quarter and meets with a jeweler who she's met before because I believe he's marrying her cousin.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, I believe uh, uh, the silversmith that's marrying Basia, her her prettier and more interesting cousin that she is being compared mm-hmm. to up until she starts doing the money lending and then her grandfather's <laughs> Yeah, like, mm, t- no, I like this one. Prettier,
1: but...
0: <laughs> it, it, it's interesting. All of her characters really take, main characters, take time to comment on how prettier everybody else is around them. They're very down on their own appearances and very much hyping other members of their families being significantly more attractive, which is... Kind of unique in a fantasy book. Most of the times the fantasy characters are either described as being attractive or at least generic. Rather in this case, there's pains taken to describe them as being very plain. But, uh, with respect to this uh, silversmith, this jeweler, she kind of proposes a deal. That you make this into something that we can market, you turn this into something that we can sell to someone who actually has money, and we'll split the profits.
1: And it's interesting because the this Silversmith is so interested in the Stark silver that she brings mm-hmm. that it's almost not a, not really a trade at all.
0: Yeah, I mean, from his perspective, he just if anything, she brought him a gift that he gets to make something of this. Mm-hmm. But he's an artist. He's not just simply a tradesman.
2: Yeah, I I feel like we can and... all sort of relate to that in in that maybe other people count, And I think this might be where some of the breakdown starts happening. Um, because I mean, well, only one of us is like legitimately an artist, but I, I think you and I, <laughs> Spencer take new knowledge and information and ways to go about that as sort of a prize in and of itself, as opposed to like the, uh, the, like, what can you profit from it?
0: Yeah, You've not given me a burden. You've given me a boon, sir. And it proves out true for this, of where he makes a a ring of true beauty. A ring that seems to have the Staric magic permanently preserved in it, in a kind of an equinoxic kind of way. But previously with the Staric we've seen that you want to look away, you want to not have any memory of them in some way or some form. But with this, it is just utterly captivating. That to see this ring is to be immediately entranced by it. And upon producing it, their immediate response is, Okay, well, Uh, I'm going to send a note to the Duke because we've got a sale to make. Yeah,
2: and well, I think that this comes with a couple of things, which is it's entrancing in a way that people notice. And so Mm -hmm. there is the... We don't want to bring attention of everybody in this big city to us because that doesn't go well. And so the place that we have in this city is we do... Like artistry work, but we can also maybe sell something to the duke, where a piece like this isn't going to cause problems in the attention that it garners. Mm-hmm. And,
0: and it's it's worth noting that by the standards of the time, and even as described in this world, the duke is remarkably tolerant. That the Jewish quarter is well protected inside of his realms, but they still have to do this through other intermediaries. They can't just go to him. They can't publicly hawk mm-hmm. this. They have to send a note to, you know, his or key whatever. man. Yes. Who comes back and then himself handles the process of the purchase. They don't meet with the dude, personally. Particularly not in public where other people could see. But the sale goes off without a mm-hmm. hitch. Because they're as much entranced by this as anything else. And it's interesting magic, too, that you don't really understand that you're being a magically affected; That you are just entranced in a way that you can't comprehend but just feel. You, there's no sense of you knowing you're being manipulated. But they make the sale. She more than successfully gets the gold she needs to pay off the Staryx to the point that she can comfortably split the profits with this jeweler and even deposit more money with her grandfather. So all of this is very much a net win for her. And... Okay, at what point do we want to bring in Arena or do we want to continue Um, with Miriam's story? I I think,
1: well, this was going to be my question, um, but BJ, tell me what you think because I think specifically to the point that you just made, Spencer, we have a lot of things to say about Arena, but we don't actually get them until later in the story.
2: Yeah, and what I was going to say is not much else happens with Miriam because we go through this process with a necklace and a crown and yeah yes.
1: so the the Staryuk king shows up like actually what
0: well, yeah she dro- she she drops it off just uh and he comes
2: in person to collect it the first time right i think so and then basically says i have another task for you you're going to do this again and we'll see how you do she does it it turns into a necklace the duke buys it then he says, mm-hmm. oh, well, you did that. Let's see how you do with this third one. And then we'll go from there. Well,
1: Yeah, we are on a classic she... sort of three-act structure yes. of this whole right. thing. In,
2: in this second so, act. Again,
1: <laughs>
2: this
0: is a very classic fable, you know, fairy yes. tale kind of structuring. And what's interesting here is that Miriam is not content to just be the passive protagonist in this kind of, you know, fairy tale. She pretty early on confronts him with well, what do I get out of this? Yeah. And is not content to have him initially just say, I won't kill you. She's like, no, no, no. No, no, no. I'm giving you something that's clearly of value to you. I need something of equal value back. And I don't think she fully understands the implications of that in Staryak society. Particularly not at this point. Right. Because, as we find out later, when she sets this, she has bound him. He has to offer her something equal. The fact that She would just submit and not demand something of it is, in his mind, a demonstration that she's a lesser race, not of consideration. Mm -hmm. The fact she's willing to barter with him makes her somebody he has to take seriously. And so, still rather flippantly, he just says, eh, if you pay this off, I'll make you my queen. Sure, yeah, because that's how impossible this task is. That's the only thing that would really equal it. I don't think he means it really seriously at this point, because I don't think he intends her for her to succeed this is very much looking to punish the humans for going beyond their abilities for thinking that they're capable of actually meeting with equals of the starry on anything but miriam being that kind of person she rises to the challenge and pulls it off beautifully with the aid of this jeweler making all the best possible
2: and the duke basically spending what would be presumably incredible amounts of money on this magic silver the king's to ransom to give to his daughter who,
1: who he doesn't particularly like to begin with. Wait, why is he doing this? Um,
2: basically, he discovers that this... He, he doesn't initially give it to her. He sort of eventually gives it to her. But basically, it's... He decides that his daughter is going to be his political route to getting a slightly higher station. Which is apparently the only thing the ability actually really care about.
0: And... The games of the board aristocrats. Yes. Um,
1: yeah, so this daughter is apparently, like, relatively plain in the world, has only limited options in this society of who her husband is going to be. But her father figures out...
2: That this magic can help out. And I think that... That this magic can right.
1: help out, but also that, like, he he has a visit from the Tsar coming up. So, like, coming it's up. not even that it helps out, because you would get a sort of, like, a more powerful minor nobility if it's going to help out but the czar is coming
2: right and so not only right. like he, not only so with the czar comes all sorts of powerful people that are going to be in his household and so maybe he can show off his daughter to a little bit more favorable light with this Staric silver sure right
0: and it, don't I mean i think we kind of have to go into arena here a little bit um but it's, her background is interesting, of where her father is a very much a military man who's been given this position of nobility because of his military mm-hmm. successes. He took this town for the Tsar, or the past Tsar, and seemingly like a, either a civil war or even just active conquering. And so he was given a position of power as a result of that. He's very military-minded. He's, he's treasured by other nobility for his ability to train troops and young nobles in the art of war. And his perspective on Arena is... I wouldn't call it cruel, but cold, sure.
2: A role of mentorship.
0: Never going to be forgiven for this. Uh, he's never denied, necessarily denied her anything. She's, been, she's received an education. She's been allowed to be involved in affairs. We find out more later on that she's remarkably well-equipped to be a noble lady. But she's hindered by the fact that she's just, by the standard of the day, not particularly
2: And Chinese. I think that her mother and passed away incredibly early on, and so she didn't have that training and that upbringing where there was a strong female a strong female aristocratic presence of the this duke's wife and so the duke basically was just like well i'm just gonna leave you with your nurse and and she'll raise you and then it's like well i don't have a son because your mom died so you just are gonna need to learn some of the stuff that's going on here and we'll figure it Uh out
1: well while i don't pay particular amounts of attention to you but the the sort of female nurse leaves her own her own kind of mark on arena yeah right
0: as a result of this kind of mixed education she emerges remarkably well equipped for what tasks are going to be set for in this book yes that she's very intelligent she's very capable she's very politically minded probably learned from her dad and very well-equipped to deal the games of nobility. In the womanly arts, she's learned from uh, this nursemaid certain key things that will prove useful and need to know. But her main education has very much been in politics and political maneuvering. And that proves useful for where it comes. More so than she ever would have thought. At the start of the story, she's kind of resigned herself to the fact that she's going to be maybe eventually consigned to a monastery. Yeah. Or to a um, a nun- She's
2: essentially a spinster. She's probably... I don't know, maybe late teens, mid 20s, something like that, and getting sort of up in the. Like, her father has not made a match for her at this point. Right.
0: And she's. And at this point, she's almost just hoping for any match, even if it's one below her station, because the options have proven kind of non existent over the last few years. But her father it's has Brienne ambition. of Tarth. And. hmm. Her father has ambition and sees with these magical artifacts very quickly what value they can have. If nothing else that he had nothing really planned to entertain the Tsar with when he came into town other than to arrange for a hunt that he knew would not go over particularly well. So knowing that the Tsar is actively being courted by people in much higher noble station than he is, with these various what he seems to recognize as magical artifacts, he has ambitions about what use his daughter can be to him beyond what he ever thought she was capable of. And bedecked in the silver accoutrement. Hand-delivered by Miriam, which is interesting that they're allowed to come to the palace by this point. It kind of shows what value he sees in them that they're bringing these, that they're allowed to kind of break that degree of protocol.
2: Yep. Arena is bedecked in the stark silver and then is paraded... Uh, in front of sort of the nobility that comes along with the czar and catches the czar's eye. Um mm-hmm. and
1: Yeah, and catches the the Tsar's eye, but it seems to be like something something a little bit beyond that, as we get from Arena's point of view in these couple of chapters, right? Because when her father is accumulating these Um,
2: Accessories Pieces of
1: jewelry, artifacts, accessories um, Associated with Or made from the Staric Silver She has a very particular reaction to them Which Seems to be Approximately the sort of reaction That the Tsar has at the same time My precious
0: It's it's interesting particularly for her Because, well, two things One, the father's ambitions with respect to Staric magic are older than this Mm -hmm as we find out from her own familial history, that her mom, separated by a few generations, has Staric blood in her. So the legends say that I think a distant relative was actually raped by a Stariuk when they were And her town. they were a little disappointed and,
2: that she didn't have like yeah. the skin and the hair that sort of went along with the beauty of her mother. And so that was sort of right. one of the disappointments to her father that she is.
0: Right. Now, for everything we hear, the father loved her mom much more than he's ever loved the stepmother. The stepmother was very much more of a political, practical kind of match. But that level of disappointment that the magic wasn't there has informed a lot of what their relationship has been. With this, it has it. And as we see through Arena, there's more to this than just the magical artifacts. They seem to unlock something in her too. That when she wears these, not only are they comp- not only are they entrancing. But she kind of becomes entrancing. The magic seems to act through her and in some ways allows her to actually express the magic, mm-hmm. as we see later when it comes to her ability to interact with mirrors. Yeah. Or even what she sees in mirrors when she, whenever she's
2: wearing these artifacts. Uh, so but
1: for the moment, we really get it with the what the Tsar really, how he reacts to her.
2: And so how the other yes. men in the court react to her. Because, you know, it's not just the Tsar. Yeah, yeah the we czar do get that early. Really, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Well, but the, and the two of those are distinct, too. And it cut, yes. it
0: kind of puts her off and catches her off guard how distinct yes. they are. <laughs> it There's also people puts in court. the
1: Tsar off.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah.
1: And how distinct those reactions are. But we also get
2: a history um, in, in these chapters where um, they, she and the czar have met before they have
0: over the subject of squirrels
2: yes um and in you know sort of maybe your favorite treatment of pets the czar used to torture and kill small animals and this made Irina really uncomfortable as a child and so this basically sort of drove her into the arms of her nurse when her father was at court
0: yeah well it's also I mean, the mean the moment between them is interesting because She doesn't just express displeasure with this. She confronts him on it and kind of calls him out on it being wrong. And he's caught off guard that anyone would have the pluck to do that. And seems almost humored by it, even if it's a child, that someone would confront him. And then very quickly responds, like, I'll kill you next, so leave me alone. Well, he he mocks her. He kind of tries to laugh it off. He threatens her, and she goes and runs to her mother's arms. But he recognizes her when he sees her. He knows her. He remembers her because of that. It is a basis of relationship that has not been forgotten. The uh, addition of the magical artifacts is decidedly new. And while most of the court reacts with just being utterly enamored, caught off guard, entranced by her, his reaction has an element of that, but in a much more coldly or even hungrily calculating kind of way.
2: Which she does not understand at the time, but boy howdy will she shortly. And so we're also in this part impressed with the uh, nature of the Tsar and how different he is than sort of all of the other nobles and everybody else that we've encountered. Um, Mm -hmm. And we get a little bit more explanation later, but he never wears the same thing twice. And he's always impeccably dressed and impeccably put together in a way that nobody Mm -hmm. else is. And especially if we basically deem this sort of middle of nowhere Russia that people just wouldn't be. Because, you, like, yeah. at best, like, you've changed into, a, like, your your other set of clothes once you've traveled by slave for a day. And so, like, mm. you've cleaned up, but you're still gross, whereas right. the Tsar yeah. never is. And,
0: and though everybody just, you know, comments on the extravagance of it, a representation of his power and wealth and everything else... It still puts people off in an interesting kind of way, that he does not really meet the standards for what a person in his position should be doing. That everyone comments several times that the fact that he's just almost ethereally beautiful, they almost assume that he's sick and gonna die. That he doesn't meet the kind of robust standards that men are expected of. It's talked about several times that, ah, eh, you know, she'll marry in, and he's probably not really capable of reproducing or anything because he's probably ill and going to die, just because he comes across as a bit of a fop even if everybody comments that he's exceptionally beautiful. This because he's not like her dad. He's not this kind of militaristic bin kind of person. He doesn't really meet their expectations, even if they are kind of e- inherently enamored by Sir him. So Spencer.
1: And this is so interesting. Oh, go ahead, PJ. Uh,
2: I'll come back to you. I'm sorry for interrupting. So I have a quick okay. historical sidebar, which is, um, type one diabetics. Like what did they, what was the impression of them? Because like they made it a little bit like far enough in life to sort of develop a bit but would have like as as guys completely like baby faces look very young and i sort of wonder if that's kind of like what they might have thought that like it's a surprise Mm. that he's made it to like late teenagers or whatever because he just looks striking like somebody that might have been a type 1 diabetic would have looked very striking up until like they just died
0: it, it is an interesting cultural point that they may just have that kind of assumption about understanding the medical science that eh, we've seen people like him or similar enough to him for years and it's kind of weird that he's made it into his 20s now probably like mid 20s a little bit older than yep. arena uh, but he's totally going to die sometime soon but yeah Sarah you were saying
1: well I mean before I get to what I was saying to that point I mean I think that we you, we get a couple of different indications that yeah and i don't know i don't know what the differentiation is but we get a couple of different indications that um he is like well it's difficult because he's desirable in the society right mm-hmm. um and that plays out in a couple of different people saying that he is attractive but what that actually means i suppose in relation to desirability in the desi- in the society is a little different
2: i mean it is a sexy of one mm-hmm. so i don't know uh, yeah <laughs> He's also got a
0: dark past, associated <laughs> too, which really stigmatized him, of where his his entire family mm-hmm. is dead, dad, De- mom, brothers. Uh, he emerged into power to a certain degree through an element of murder of all of them, some of them dying of disease, his mom literally being burned at the stake for practicing demonology. Uh, it has led everyone to assume at this stage that he is a dark wizard. Mm-hmm. And that is a persistent rumor we hear about him well before we meet him that yes he's incredibly beautiful he practices dark magic he's probably evil let's see how this goes sure. and early on i don't know how you guys felt i just kind of assumed that this was all going to be false and just dark rumors associated with him i was wrong i was very yeah. wrong <laughs> wrong in ways i,
2: didn't I actually expect. expected a little bit more of a vampire kind of thing uh,
1: oh that's interesting yeah but
2: but like i didn't have enough of an expectation for it to be like for it to change the story i guess Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah, I guess what? I kind of wanted to get your read on like what has happened so far because I mean this these are sort of fantasy tropes but like are a little bit different and a little bit more of like a female perspective on them um, in terms of like how Arena's is sort of going through things.
1: Yeah. And so what I was going to say earlier that I think is, is really interesting about both the perspective that we have at this point in the story. And um, where where we kind of eventually end up, while we are we are traveling with the spoiler, we'll get there. Newly married <laughs> Czar and Arena, right? Is this idea that we come in with the Czar being sort of supremely attractive and obviously well well positioned for marriage, mm-hmm. and kind of all around a catch right Um, and we (laughs) have arena who we have been in the perspective of which I think is super interesting um, but in her head where she does not view herself as attractive where she knows where she stands with her father where she has been raised by her kind of nursemaid who has particular feelings towards her that are that are Loving and nurturing, but also Mm -hmm. understanding of kind of who she is in the world. (laughs) And then we get immediately flipped on this, this relationship of what we expected it to be is immediately flipped on its head in the eyes of everyone else around them.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the Star Exilver just kind of like changes where everybody is and like is sort of the turning point for two out of the three characters in this story. This is a...
0: This is a book that is very content to treat what would normally be plot as just an element of background Mm -hmm. of where it will introduce something that in many other stories would just be the entire tale and then 40 pages into it just say okay well having set that up here's where I actually want to go yeah and it's so interesting
1: because it, it it to kind of take a step back as you were as you were saying Spencer it takes these sort of physical interactions and says okay but what are the human implications of this
2: yeah the sure. the fairy tale of turning silver into gold okay you have to do this 3 times and then we'll get to it and that's like two chapters cool, out cool, of the cool end-
1: that's going to happen right
2: and that <laughs> happened and then th- this is what yeah. happens because of that and then mm-hmm. the silver right. that was fairy silver was were were turned into jewels and so this allowed the fairly plain daughter of the, uh, Marshall Duke to capture the eye of the czar and he is so entranced with her that he marries her. Okay. So that happens, but like, what does that mean? And yes, what happens yeah. to these characters? And so sort of fairly it's- quickly in this middle third, we get a turning point in many characters' stories, and then their story then plays out, as opposed to that was the story.
1: Yes,
0: it's almost like the the writer's more interested in the they lived happily ever after. Of what? Okay, let's unpack what that actually. Yeah, means. But they do. Because yeah, that's so not a
1: thing. It's so. not quite. <laughs> uh,
0: but like you guys said, we throughout the story we we have three main characters. We've got Arena, we've got Miriam, we have got Wanda, mm-hmm. who often follow very. I'll say mirroring paths, sometimes literally mirroring paths. Uh, at this moment, all three of them are being tried. Are, are, well, at this point, all three of them are being forced into marriages. Yeah. All three of the, all three of those play out differently, but it all happens at almost precisely the same time in this book. Mm-hmm. Of where, Arena is being married off to the Tsar, which she has a lot of concerns about because of her prior connection to him as a kid. That. She has an insight into who he is that she doesn't like, and she's heard a lot of rumors that put her on edge as to what he might be. And she's also concerned by the weird kind of hungry response he has to her when he sees her, the predatory kind of response. Mm-hmm. All all those put her on edge. Meanwhile, Miriam has succeeded on her bet, meaning the Starry King shows up to take her away. In a weird kind of freezing of time moment where... He arrives, but everything else in the world stops around her. We've seen him do that a couple times, like when she's coming back from having made—I think it's the—I th- I guess it's the necklace. Mm-hmm. Her uh, her driver tries to kill her in one of the one of the more blatant early depictions of what threat of what under threat uh, either Miriam or Jews in this realm have. In this case, just because she's a moneylender who has started to collect her debts around town. Stark King saves her by preserving time and kind of sends the guy back to die in his home in a way that kind of covers their tracks. But she has very little choice in the matter when it comes to marrying him. This is the bet in his mind that she has set, and now they both have to play it out, despite the fact that neither of them are happy about it. So that one goes forward, and at the same time, Wanda is being sold off by her dad like the well-fattened pig he always thought she would be. Well, for about a week's worth of alcohol. Yeah, from his perspective, a very good trade. Uh, I think we can go into more what's happening with Wanda's plot with respect to the magic of inserting into the family, maybe in the magic section, because we only have so much time to go through all of these. But for each of these three married plots, how do they play out in the short
2: term? Well, Arena gets married. Uh, That one goes forward. Yeah, that one goes forward. Uh, Miriam goes to the Staric Realm. Mm -hmm. Um, And Wanda's not so happy
0: not so happy in the sense that that chapter ends with her father having kind of burned slash melted in the fire
2: okay so so basically she's like i don't really want to do that and i'm fairly happy working where i am and i'm still owe my debt and and we need to pay that off and he basically goes like how dare you speak to me talk back to me whatever starts hitting her grabs the poker on the from the fire and not the first time starts hitting her with it um, and goes for her face which is problematic to her and her brothers involved um, to which they then sort of uh, one of them takes the cast iron pot of uh, Kasha which is uh, uh,
1: porridge more or less well yeah. it's a
2: specific grain um, yeah Uh well, it, it's also so broad
0: strokes. <laughs> he, he he both simultaneously falls in the fire and also has this boiling yes. material dumped on him. There we go. So he's very de- he's very dead after the course of this. So all three of our characters have ended their essentially their marriage proposal situation under immediate threat. <laughs> Where in the case of Wanda, she and Sergei now have to flee while leaving Stepan with Miriam's family because they assume quite rightly that the town is now out. Kill them, mm-hmm. or at least send them to the no- send the noble for murdering their Which father. Which is also a Probably little weird. The worst of the crimes they ever committed.
2: Because like he's clearly kind of like the layabout, town drunk that everybody dislikes. And oh, I know, but yes. the children
1: are his. Yeah, his.
2: he can kill
0: them at will. That's not really a crime. It's his family. Sure. <laughs> this is a medieval setting. I mean, yeah, he can this do is what how this happens. His
2: yeah uh, I mean so, I guess I feel like the other side of it is whoever kind of wanted to marry Wanda like probably would have just been like well you're mine now rather than turn her over the like I don't know it just seems like a very yeah. But that co- that
1: contract was not made
0: that contract was not made and from his perspective now that contract has baggage that I don't want yeah. I don't want my son associated with Fair somebody enough. that has just murdered their
1: father <laughs> yeah so, to your point Spencer um <laughs> which I don't know if you meant to say or not, but what, no. it is the husband, prospective husband's father who is calling the shots here.
0: Yes, very much so.
1: Whatever, I don't even, I don't know what his name is, it doesn't matter, but whoever the prospective husband was was not even like necessarily all that interested. None of that matters, but there was a financial transaction going on between yeah. the two fathers.
2: It- and
0: to be fair, they valued her at a recurring alcohol supply into the into the future. So, oh you know, sure, this 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 isn't just an, an upright gift. This is there's an annuity attached a to this. Yeah, uh, so that one plays out with them having to leave Steppen behind with Miriam's family, yes. uh, and they just go on the lam. Mm-hmm. Um Meanwhile, Arena finds out that uh, pretty much on her wedding night that oh, all right, I'm not only under immediate threat. There's actively a demon infesting this person that is trying to murder me.
1: Yeah, there is. Her husband, the czar, is has made a pact with the the, the demon. Death.
2: Well, yeah. yeah, We'll get to his well, actual name uh, sort of eventually. Um, sure,
1: yeah, we'll go into the,
0: we'll, we'll go into the details of that here in a bit. Um, but she has to make use of the tools that she's been given in very classic mythology fantasy style of you've been given the magical sword that makes the quest possible. Mm-hmm she 's been given the magical artifacts that allow her to move between worlds in a way i don't think she even really gets or fully understands yet, but certainly knows she can do
1: no, she just needs to hide from her husband
0: which gives her a wonderful fly on the wall perspective of what the nature of him is boy howdy
2: of course because <laughs> she gets so to she see- basically mm-hmm. is able to step into the mirror and then look back from the mirror to see him. As he really, well, as he acts in their private room, but sort of looks in the mirror to see him as he really is.
0: Right, because he enters the room with the full intent of murdering her, which at the time she doesn't really get why. Having not found her, he just kind of trashes the place and then speaks with his demon out of the fire.
2: I think, Who don't we, we learn? see here mm-hmm. that he, he hurts himself doing so, trashing the place? Like... It, he does. It, and the demon hurts him Right, too. but like, it partially destroys him, his clothes, and sort of everything. And then as soon as like this wave of violence passes, he's then put back together, back to his original beautiful state. Right. He kind of
0: extracts from the demon a certain degree of magic to make all this possible. <laughs> hey, you did this. I am not wasn't particularly happy with marrying her in the first place, much less... Happy covering for what you were intending to do. Give me the magic necessary to make all this possible. Mm-hmm. And with a wave of his hand, everything he did just fades away. Everything's repaired even nicer than it was before. He's wearing a whole new outfit. All of his injuries are covered. And he exits the scene with Arena just now realizing how much
2: of deep shit I she is. And she's in. probably pretty cold because she's. <laughs> she's in the Stark Realm.
1: <laughs> and speaking of the Stark Realm.
0: Oh, yes. Miriam has now arrived at what is described as, what, a giant diamond, essentially? That's kind of um, a diamond mountain mm-hmm. that's just existing in the Staric Realm. Uh, kind of Superman-esque. Yeah, very, very much. The, you know, the what's it called? The something of solitude? Yes.
2: I, I don't remember what of... whatever.
0: Yeah, Fortress? Kind of yes. Big, Fortress but, of that's solitude? Fortress, yes. Very Thank good. Very good. Um, but she goes in there and realizes that there's going to be a formal ceremony between all the Stariok people, which they go through. Clearly, the Stariok king is not happy with any of this, and is not even really making much of an effort to really give her the due that she's entitled to for what's happening right now, to the point that she takes the crown herself and puts it on her own head, which has a bit of a magical effect that I don't think anyone in the room was really anticipating. Including her. Including her. I think she, at this point, was just as is her nature, defending her own rights, responding to people not treating her fairly in the way she deserves, believes she deserves, she grabs the crown, puts it on her own head, and it immediately turns to gold. A radiating, sun-trapped-in-it kind of gold. Which has the effect of really quickly banishing the little smug, condescending glances that all the Staryak have when they're looking it's at her. like, oh, this is and what also, he you.
2: okay. Oh,
0: we're getting it now, this isn't like he just lost a bet. There's an element of actual value here. She also starts to realize that the Staric Society is incredibly stratify- stratified, mm-hmm. of where even in the rings of people that are assembled about her, there are clear demarcations, even in basic attire, between those who are in positions of power and those who aren't. The closer you get up to the top of the heap, the more they wear white, the more they wear silver. And she now sits in a kind of position above the ball. She sits with gleaming gold upon her head. But as she gets back to the room to, you know, enjoy whatever that's going to be, she also quickly realizes how under threat she is when the Star Trek King reveals, while, you know, stopping it from happening, that he kind of just intended to poison
2: her right then and there. But now that they, they've seen her and seen her power, he can't really do that. And so this is where uh, the rebalance of power happens and some bargaining occurs. Where she sort of gets a couple of servants that she names amusingly. And she gets from him that he will answer three of her questions. And the three comes up again.
0: In exchange for him not giving her what he thinks is her due, her marriage rights. That he in some ways views that she's entitled to have him have sex with her to consummate the marriage. But he doesn't want to do this. And so he's essentially giving her these gifts so that she doesn't claim this from him, which I think she's okay with. At least at this point. Oh part. yeah, she's fine with this. This is a win-win.
1: Oh yeah, we have this kind of like um sitcom worthy interaction up uh, Right. Cool. Thanks.
0: Yeah, you, you know, I, I'm going to do I'm going to do this as a favor to you and I want you to recognize how much of a favor this is. Yeah. I don't think at this point she really fully gets how much of the society is built around these kind of deals and exchanges and how much they have to be fair actors about them. They have to be equal. Otherwise, it's an insult to the other person if you are not. Uh, Don't think she's really going to understand that for a while to come. But it leads us in a position, a point that, at least at this point when everybody was starting to go in their directions, I didn't think the balance of power would be where it is right now. I kind of assumed that Arena would be the one in the much better position. I didn't assume that she would be the one quite possibly in one of the worst positions, as compared to Miriam, who is literally now married to an ice demon that has always wanted to harm her, or at least find ways that she would fail and harm her, require him to harm her himself, is instead in at least a position of well-kept captivity. She has no agency, she can't really do anything to escape from this, but she's starting to wield a measure of power over what that is and how
2: it plays yeah, she's out. sort of finagling the terms of the deals that he makes and right getting power from uh basically the letter of the law there um,
0: Right. she's a, still a she's still a prisoner but she's a prisoner that is operating in a system by which there are rules for her yes. captivity and she's gaining a lot better understanding for
2: how those work and how she can and manipulate. so in this she starts to she gets a couple of uh ladies in waiting who spencer mm-hmm. do you remember the names of those ladies in waiting i was afraid you were gonna ask that i they've fallen out of my
0: head it right is
2: and i didn't get the humor in this um because i don't really speak yiddish however my mother read this book and this mm-hmm. is a sort of inside joke because one of the uh, ladies in waiting has a mark uh, on her, I believe, is a birthmark or something like that. And Miriam basically calls her Spot, and mm-hmm. the other one has a pretty braid, and so Miriam calls her Braid, <laughs> which kind of. For all the various
0: names she sets up, well, for the initial names that she introduces into this world, because she does not really realize here at the start, names have a massive degree of importance. Yes. Uh, we've heard before from the start King that she can never know his name. Doesn't matter that she's married to him, she will never have that degree of power over him. This is very much grounded in kind of de- a demonic um, yeah. mythology and background. Yeah. That if you have, if you have someone's true name, you have a magical degree of power over that person. So... Apparently for a lot of people in the story the world, they don't even have names. They don't merit those names. They've not, they don't have enough power to have that power taken from them by knowing their name. And so she gives them so a by, lot of power by naming them. Yes, though she makes very little effort to make them unique or whatever else. As you said, Spot, Braid, and she later names their driver's chauffeur. <laughs> so she's not trying too hard yeah. about this.
2: Um, but this allows her to basically have a lot more agency in her life... Which ends up mm-hmm. with her exploring the Staric world, and at some point, after driving for a bit, she ends up in a little cottage.
0: Yes, a cottage which ties us very much back to Wanda's story, as it turns out, as well as Arena's story, as it will play <laughs> out later. This cottage is very important. <laughs> Again, mirrored the house plot on lines. Haunted Hill. But, guys, we are over our hour, and I think we've currently really set up where the middle part of the story is, which is going to branch into the next of our epic um. bets. And, yes uh, where i think
2: like out. we can fairly quickly get people to the house because on the run from the law um wanda and her brother mm-hmm. basically go further and further into the forest and find a hut um where a witch's hut. Uh, yeah a witch's hut that they're a little bit unsure about but seems to have some wood there and to be at least somewhat reasonably stocked for the winter and they sort of clean it up, and do what they can there. Yeah, they make a
0: home at this place. They find a lot of things that prove useful, like even more than they expect. They find various items of food, there are tubers that are growing underneath the snow. And as they stay in the house, they start to decide that they need to, thinking it's still someone else's home, they need to offer something to it, they need to repair it, they need to make it more than it was. In the process of doing that, it seems that things start to appear around them. Y- almost, they think tools necessary to make this process happen,
1: which also continues in furtherance of this idea that they need to to give something back to the house.
2: Yes, another yes. deal that's being. They feel made. almost as if they,
1: Yes, yeah,
0: they feel almost as if the house has agreed to their terms and is helping them in this process. Ah.
1: And at the same time, Arena is. F- fleeing from her situation through through the mirror to s- some sort of uh, sort of snow world, she goes to the forest. Mm-hmm.
2: Yep, and so she sort of spends <clears throat> the nights, shall we say, um, that that she might otherwise and, spend yeah. with her husband in this snow world, and in an effort to gain power over her, uh, the czar brings her. Uh, sets out to bring her nurse to, as one of the only people she cares about, to his court, mm-hmm. and right. at the at the suggestion of Chernobog, sure. who has thought this. His time. demon and Chernobog being the name yes. of the demon. No, yes. we we don't find out until fairly late, pretty much the end of the story. But yes, his demon basically but. says, "We need power over this, uh, this woman that that has a coldness that we desire," and
1: and Arena says, "I'm not going to let." him have power over me and I'm not going to let him use the people I love as a sort of token in this game. Therefore, we're all right. going through the mirror yeah. into the forest.
0: Yeah, And arena 's sense of her people, the people that are under her protection, proves imminently important as the story goes on. Of where she takes her role as being the Tsarina seriously. That She knows that this is all kind of a bit of a game and a dodge but she's going to assume that role and have people believe it. And we see that play out frequently as they're riding to the countryside, that she makes all of the efforts to appear as this arena, to earn the, the loyalty of the nobility, to
2: engage with them, to even make the images necessary for the populace to know who she is and value yeah. her And for that. so in the and days where she's not avoiding her husband, she basically plays the political ruler that he should have been playing all along, but he's sort of been right. uh, demon doing things as demon does.
0: Right. And she's very casually adept at it, that she manipulates those around her very successfully in getting them to exactly have the emotional response that she wants to at any given moment. Sometimes to, to build in a level of protection, at other times to actually engage in the politicking that her husband is ac- choosing not to. Yeah. But it, it leads to her, with the maid, eventually fleeing into what she still doesn't really realize is the Stark realm, and coming
2: across this house. Um, where basically as they're sort of trying to prepare some of the food that they brought and, uh, things like that, things start sort of appearing again, and her nurse starts basically to do the things that she's good at, which is weaving and knitting, um, because she's basically brought there as a, like, you're going to hang out here until I can fix whatever's going on and then hopefully i'll be able to bring you back into court once i wield enough power so you're safe with her
0: long-term plan eventually being to get her husband's demonic possession revealed and have a similar thing done to him as was done to his mother yep. and be in a position to survive and profit from this by planning the next political
2: future of the realm and sort of in there, we get the knot and intertwining of all of our plots that sort of slowly weave into to the, the rest of the picture. But I think that's a good spot um, just before the, the spoon that was revealed to Spencer in a very excited fashion. Um, and we will reveal <laughs> to everybody else in the next episode.
1: Right. And so if our listeners are looking for a safe haven in the woods...
2: Um, I don't know how safe it is, uh, cause there are some demons there, but if you want any other, uh, of our podcasts, you can go to mangumtalks.com where you can find all of the past books and stories that we have done, um, as well as our podcast within a podcast, Pottering Around where we're doing chapter by chapter read of all of the Harry Potter books. And we are closing in on the finish of the second book of Harry Potter. Um, And you can also find such things as Whiskey on the Weekends, where we drink whiskeys and chat about anything that comes to our minds, as well as Mangum Talks TV, where uh, Lee and Spencer have just finished up succession, I hear tell. Um, we have, and we also have a a couple of other random podcasts that happen every so often, but if you have any questions, comments, or other suggestions as to books that we might do or things that you want us to talk about in the relations to the stories that we are doing, uh, click the contact us link in the top right-hand corner of the webpage and we read all the comments and look forward to, uh, hearing your suggestions. Um, but, Spencer, I did sort of cut you off because I believe you are moving on to another TV show on Mangum Talks TV. Do you want to plug that real quick?
0: It's still being finalized, but it looks like we're probably going to do The Mandalorian. So I will need to find
2: a way to uh, get a Disney Plus account finally activated. That is very confusing, Spencer. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> Um, but with that, uh, we look forward to finishing up the plot, probably our next episode, and then we'll probably talk a couple of other things, um, before we completely wrap up with this story. Um, uh, maybe a little bit on the magic and sort of the themes of fairy tales. Um, but this has been fun as always, guys. Uh, look forward to next time. Cool. Yeah.